Welcome to Beyond the Evidence AODH, a podcast supported by the Graken Center for Addiction Medicine at Boston Medical Center. I'm one of our co-hosts, Sonora Englander. I'm an addiction medicine, hospital medicine physician, and health services researcher at Oregon Health and Science University, OHSU, in Portland, Oregon. And I'm Mark LaRochelle, an addiction-focused primary care physician and health services researcher at the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center. Mark, can you give us an introduction of what we hope to do in Beyond the Evidence AODH? Certainly. We seek to be an extension of AODH, a bi-monthly newsletter that summarizes the latest clinically relevant research on substance use and health. In this podcast, we will engage with articles covered by AODH in a different format, including through author interviews. Great. Let's go ahead and jump in with today's guest. We're excited to be here with Dr. Jess Taylor today to talk about her drug and alcohol dependence paper titled Bridge Clinic Implementation of 72-Hour Rule Methadone for Opioid Withdrawal Management, Impact on Opioid Treatment Program Linkage and Retention in Care. Welcome, Dr. Taylor. Can you introduce yourself to our audience, please? Sure. I'm really happy to be here with you both. I'm Jess Taylor. I am an addiction doc and HIV specialist at Boston Medical Center in Boston, Mass. And a lot of my work focuses on low barrier models for medications for opioid use disorder, as well as harm reduction, including our bridge clinic here at Boston Medical Center, which is called Bastropath. Just to kind of introduce the work, tell us why you did this study. Sure. So our bridge clinic has been around since 2016. And in the early part of our care that we provided, we were really very focused on buprenorphine, like many settings that are not licensed as an opioid treatment program or a methadone clinic. Our tools included buprenorphine and its formulations. And, you know, that was really a lot of the work that we did. But over time, especially with the arrival of fentanyl in Boston, with some of the challenges related to the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of factors came together to really, I think, open our eyes to the fact that that our patients needed better access to methadone. And that as a bridge clinic, that was an area that we really needed to deliver on better for our patients. So historically, if someone came to us and maybe we were taking care of them with buprenorphine, or maybe they walked in and were interested in methadone, we would help them get on the phone and call around to local programs, schedule an, an appointment, and then help them address any, you know, any transit barriers, but essentially just do the navigation of scheduling an intake, which might have been a couple of days out or even a week or two in, into the future. And we realized that, that that just wasn't cutting it. And then at, here at, at Boston Medical Center, during the early days of the COVID pandemic, we had the opportunity to explore some of the regulatory space around methadone in a little more detail. What prompted that is that we supported essentially a respite unit for people experiencing homelessness who also had COVID-19 infection that needed a safe place to recover that was not hospital level of care, but still a place that was supported clinically and where we were able to do infection control. And in the course of doing that, realized that a lot of the people we were serving needed to initiate methadone. And that caused us to do a little bit of digging around a a regulation called the 72-hour rule. And I'll just say, as as a buprenorphine doctor, I was not familiar with this. I'd heard a little bit about this mythical 72-hour rule. I think like a lot of internists, I was under the impression that that was something that our emergency medicine colleagues were allowed to do that was really off limits for someone like me or a program like mine, which is the bridge clinic, but it's an outpatient program. So we are like operate as an outpatient clinic. We bill as an outpatient clinic. But in the course of sort of exploring how to best serve our patients that had COVID-19 that were being supported in the respite unit, we actually read the statute 
and you know the 72 hour rule statute has been around for more than 20 years at this point it's not new it's been on the books for quite a long time and when we actually pulled it and, and read it with our legal team, it turns out that it doesn't limit the care setting. So there is no stipulation in the statute that it is required to be implemented in an emergency room or you know any other inpatient level of care. And so you know we realized that we actually did have the infrastructure to be able to use the 72-hour rule. And we can talk a little more, bit more about what that is, but key things for us included the appropriate licensure of our space and safe ways to store and administer Schedule II controlled substances. That sort of started us on this pathway and we did a first pilot case in March of 2021. It's amazing to hear just how the lessons from COVID really were the seed to prompt you to do this. Really exciting. You know, I'm actually really interested. Can you just sort of talk about briefly what the model is just for our listeners to be able to hear that piece? Yeah, sure. So for anyone that is not familiar with the 72-hour rule, and I was in that camp until recently, it is essentially a regulation that allows a provider to administer, though not prescribe, a narcotic drug. And this is a podcast, so people can't see the air quotes, but the language in the statute is narcotic drug, which is obviously different than language we use clinically, but would include Schedule II medications like methadone. Administer that medication to treat opioid withdrawal for up to 72 hours while arranging ongoing care. I'll emphasize a few pieces of that, those regulations, I guess, as I talk through the model. Essentially, what, what we're offering is on-demand opioid withdrawal management. And how that looks is that our bridge clinic is now open seven days a week and sees patients on both a scheduled and walk-in basis. It's about 50-50 as far as patients scheduled in advance or who walk in. And essentially, patients who are in opioid withdrawal can come in, request to be seen, we add them to the schedule, and they have a medical evaluation where they are assessed to see if they meet criteria for an opioid use disorder, to see if they meet the requirements to be referred to a, an opioid treatment program, because there are very specific clinical requirements for who's eligible to receive care in a, an opioid treatment program. And I think more importantly, to sort of zoom out and talk to them about their goals and what, and what they want. And one of the most rewarding parts of, of this entire new service that we're offering is that it does allow us to offer access to all of the FDA-approved medications for opioid use disorder. And certainly patients come in thinking that they want methadone for withdrawal management. We talk to them. We learn that getting to a clinic every day is going to be really challenging and not, you know, not feasible with other factors in their life. We might offer buprenorphine. We also have patients coming in seeking buprenorphine where we learn more about their history and, you know, talk together and decide that methadone is actually the right pathway. So we're certainly um, doing a comprehensive substance use disorder assessment, including using the DSM criteria to diagnose a use disorder, and then talking to patients about which medications, if any, meet their goals right now, and then also offering harm reduction services. So there is a provider evaluation that includes all of those pieces. And if someone is found to be an opioid withdrawal, which we assess using the clinical opioid withdrawal scale score, we then talk to them about options for methadone administration for emergency withdrawal management while we start to link them to ongoing care. And so this piece becomes both something that's new clinically, but also a really time pressured referral where we have 72 hours to link to ongoing care. And I said a minute ago that in the past, when we were referring patients to methadone clinics, we would often be told that there was a one to two week wait for patients to be able to start treatment. And so the way that we've been able to get around that is by setting up direct admission relationships with many of our local OTP partners. We can talk more about direct admissions if that's helpful, but essentially what a direct admission involves is an agreement that patients are able to be 
started on dosing at a at an opioid treatment program, essentially under a gas dosing mechanism, and receive a methadone dose the first day that they present to the clinic, and then complete the methadone clinic's enrollment process. So patients are able to continue methadone without interruption. And through these arrangements and collaborative agreements, our partners accept our patients within just a couple of days, as opposed to the longer wait time that someone might have going through a traditional outpatient referral or initiation pathway where they are required to wait to see that provider at the OTP in order to receive an initial dose. So we're doing the baseline assessment. We are sending that medical evaluation that really confirms that patients are clinically eligible for long-term methadone treatment for their opioid use disorder, that they meet the criteria for entry into an OTP, including around having a diagnosed use disorder, around their age, and the other factors that are, you know, that are requirements based on federal regulation. We work with a nurse care manager who's really the anchor of our program and has leadership around the referrals process. We send off our completed note with the referrals package and ask for a visit that's typically on day four because we can treat withdrawal for up to three days. And then we need to land that patient somewhere where they can receive a methadone dose for day four. From there, we address other medical needs. So we do screening for infections. We try to do infection prevention services like HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, screening and treatment for sexually transmitted infections for hepatitis C, certainly overdose prevention counseling. And we distribute naloxone in our, in our program. We distribute safer consumption supplies, including syringes, and then see the patient the following day. So administer a dose of methadone and and just, you know, what that actually concretely looks like is placing an order in our medical record and either a provider or a nurse care manager walks to a medication dispensing cabinet, which is, I don't know, 100 yards away, less, and removes the medication from the cabinet, walks back into the office room. We administer it under observation. And from there, patients are able to, you know, return to the community. This is an outpatient clinic. And so many of our patients are not seeking residential level of care. And then they return the following day and they're reevaluated. We assess withdrawal. We talk to them about how well or not well the methadone dose that we chose treated their withdrawal symptoms and make a, a treatment decision for that day and work with them on any pieces of the referral that may still be pending around collaborating with the methadone program to get them the information they need and confirm that the patient's accepted. That's really fantastic and super exciting. So in your DAD report, you summarized your early experience with that, which was really impressive. And I'm wondering if you could tell us what you found that you reported in this report. Sure. A minute ago, I mentioned that linking to ongoing care is a key part of the statute. And so that was the part that as a program, we were you know, a little bit nervous about because getting patients accepted at a clinic within three days is it's a lot of time pressure. And so what we wanted to evaluate was how successful we were in both getting the appointment that the patients needed but also whether this entire process actually yielded linkages, meaning the patient went to the OTP and received a dose of methadone, and whether it it yielded continuity as far as the methadone treatment. We evaluated how many of the patients that we referred to our two primary OTP partners for whom we have data use agreements. We evaluated of those 121 initial referrals, how often did patients link to the clinic and how often were they retained at one month? And, you know, we were hoping, looking at the literature for linkage rates, we would have been delighted to see a linkage rate around 50% or, you know, or a bit north of that. But what we actually found was that 87% of the time, the patients that we referred made it to the clinic and got a dose of methadone. And the majority of those within 48 hours of the scheduled appointment. 
So really something that, that vastly exceeded what we would have expected as far as linkage rates for a population with profound barriers to treatment engagement, which, which I can talk about more. So of those, 58% of all of the referrals, 58% were retained at one month, which were retention rates early, right? So early data, but, but retention rates that we felt really good about. And how would that compare to a standard methadone population? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, we've asked our OTP partners and they tell us that the direct admissions that come from faster paths link and are retained at very similar rates to other direct admission populations. You know, our, our cohort is a little bit different than some other patients that are referred to methadone. So, you know, compared to patients that started a methadone program through a traditional pathway, I would say our patients have a lot more barriers. And this work that we did was really a programmatic innovation and a quality improvement evaluation. And so we didn't collect systematic data on housing status, on medical comorbidities, to be able to rattle off numbers on, you know, on specifics about clinical complexity. But we do know that in this group, a local community health center that serves patients experiencing homelessness was our top referral source, as was our emergency department. We saw really high rates of homelessness, but also unsheltered homelessness, and many people living in local tent encampments. The group that we served had very high rates of, of ED utilization in the past 12 months, a very high baseline prevalence of HIV, which was actually 15%. That's an HIV prevalence that I, you know, we don't see here in Boston outside of an ID clinic. So just a real, I think for us, shocking prevalence that indicated to us just what high risk the people seeking methadone through this pathway have related to injection drug use and other risk factors. And we've also looked at the literature to see how this bears out compared to, to published lit. And our addiction counsel service at, at BMC has actually published on linkage and early retention outcomes for patients admitted to the hospital. And so this is a different group. This is people admitted to a, you know, a hospital with a serious medical issue who are started on methadone inpatient and then linked to an OTP through a similar direct admission pathway. And those linkage rates are, are very similar. So in that case, 76% of the, the group linked. You know, we think both of these pathways are incredibly important. And we think that globally, the direct admission avenue into an OTP is incredibly underutilized. It really allows us as a medical system to connect patients between these various siloed places that people receive care. The clinical medical system being on one side, we're, we're taking care of patients that have the endocarditis, that have the cellulitis, that have the serious infections. And then the subspecialty addiction treatment program, which, you know, which by design due to regulations is currently completely separate from our medical or clinical medical system. And direct admission allows one way for us to really smooth the transition for patients that are often lost in in a high-risk transition and you know i think about your work mark on touch points and just what we know about what happens when someone has an acute clinical challenge problem receives acute care it can be incredibly disruptive to their trajectory of their oud treatment can increase overdose risk and so being able to both treat withdrawal treat it with doses that are clinically appropriate of methadone and then pass a patient off directly to long-term methadone treatment without interruption is something that we should all be able to do. And, you know, one that when we think about this work, I, I just really feel regretful that we weren't doing this all along. And I think we could have been doing this for quite a long time. You said this, and I think it's such an important point that I want to make sure to really draw it out. Just talk about the logistics of a direct admission and what that means at the OTP side. So someone does not have to see the OTP physician or the OTP clinician and instead can do direct observed doses with nursing. Is that right? Yes. 
The way that it works is that the evaluation of a physician who is outside of the OTP stands and the patient is accepted on the basis of that medical evaluation, begins dosing, so receives a dose immediately, and then subsequently sees the OTP physician and becomes fully enrolled. And so between the time that they start receiving methadone at the OTP and see the OTP typically physician or provider, they are essentially treated as a being under a guest dosing protocol. And often their dose isn't changed during that time period, although different OTPs have different policies. You know, and this is a pathway that's recognized in our federal regulations. That's not new. The three typical direct admission pathways that are allowable, as I understand it, include coming from an inpatient hospitalization. And that's the work that I was describing from our addiction consult service with linkage. Coming from a, an inpatient detox program or acute treatment services is how we call those in Massachusetts. Or coming from other settings, including outpatient under the 72-hour rule. That could include an emergency department as well. Fascinating. And this may be too much getting into the weeds, but I'll ask when people are guest dosing in this sort of transition phase, are they paying out of pocket or is that covered? So that I know that the guest dosing payment can be an issue for people. You know, that's a really good question. The way that I answer it may not apply nationally. So in Massachusetts and specifically where we practice, our state Medicaid has very robust coverage of medications for opioid use disorder, including methadone. And in this group that we studied, all except one patient, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, were insured by Medicaid or by a combined Medicaid, Medicare product. And so we really do not run into out-of-pocket cost or payment barriers. And we're also incredibly fortunate to practice in a state with a really robust Department of Public Health that actually has resources to support patients that face insurance or payment barriers to enrolling in an OTP. It's not something that's been a barrier for us, but it, it's, I think, one of the primary barriers if, if we were to look across the country. Great. I'm wondering if you could tell us about your dosage strategies for these three days and how that might compare to what OTPs are doing for initiation. Sure. You know, I, I'll say that not having an OTP license is a double-edged sword in a lot of ways. I think on the downside, and then I'll actually answer your question, you know, not being an OTP means that we're limited to 72 hours and that goes by really quickly. On the plus side, we are not an OTP and therefore we are not bound to the federal regulations that govern care and OTPs. And those regulations really have not been modernized in the era of fentanyl. They are not responsive to the reality of the potency of the opioids that our patients are using. And so if someone starts care at an OTP, they're typically treated with 30 milligrams on day one. They may have a second assessment on the same day and receive an additional 10 milligrams and then are titrated at a, a relatively slow pace from there. So they might get 30 milligrams, 30, 40 30, 40, 40, something in that range over their first couple of days, depending on the program and the specifics of their policies. And there's certainly exceptions, and there are examples across the country of OTPs that titrate much more quickly than that, but based on waivers, but that is the traditional OTP entry. And so, I mean, we started there. We operate in a first clinic. We're outpatient doctors. Some of us work in methadone clinics. I have never, but we, we do have colleagues in our clinic that are familiar with working in an OTP. And we really wanted to be cautious administering methadone to outpatients for the first time and get our feet under us. And so when we started, we were treating most patients with 30 milligrams day one. We also, in this cohort, were taking care of some patients with very high medical complexity, with cirrhosis that had recently been decompensated, with heart failure. And so we had some patients where we treated with lower doses on the basis of, of their risk for recidivation. But we pretty quickly realized that wasn't cutting it. 
I think two things happened. I think we got more comfortable because we weren't seeing patients become sedated after being treated with 30 milligrams or 40 milligrams. But we also realized that our strategies weren't working because very often we would treat with 30 milligrams. Someone would be in uncontrolled withdrawal later that day or evening, understandably have to use because of the severity of their symptoms, and then present the next morning to see us with sedation or just not being in withdrawal yet. And it's tricky because the 72-hour rule is specific to withdrawal. It allows the treatment of withdrawal. It doesn't allow maintenance. It doesn't allow continue this plan because it's really important for the patient, which we, we would love to have the ability to do that. So, you know, what was happening was patients' progress and trajectory was being potentially threatened by under-treating their withdrawal. And in a bridge clinic where we have eight hours of provider time every day, we actually did have the capacity to let patients spend some time with us if there was over-sedation, you know, be observed, maybe get a meal, be reassessed later in the day. That's something that, that really isn't possible at many OTPs because of the limited dosing hours, the structure, more limited access to providers. So we're in a really interdisciplinary model where we are a fairly provider-heavy structure. And so it is possible for us to reassess patients. And what we found is that with being a little bit more aggressive in appropriate cases, our patients were having to use less and then presenting in withdrawal when they first arrived the next day so that we could right away continue the withdrawal treatment with methadone and seem to be linking more effectively. We had one case in particular early on who was a young woman that we treated with, I think, 30 milligrams day one, 40-40, and made it to the methadone clinic, I believe, for just one day. Subsequently, had returned to use, ended up going to an inpatient program, and then a month or two later returned to us. And she just said, it, it didn't cut it. There's no way I can get in when I'm this sick. And so we treated her with higher dosing. And she was one of the early patients we treated with 40 milligrams, followed by 50, followed by 60, and was able to link and sustain her time in the OTP. So, you know, at this point, we've treated a little over 1,000 patients in faster paths and a little bit over 100, between 100 and, and 150 at a second site majority of the time we're treating withdrawal with 40 milligrams day one, 50 day two, 60 day three in patients with high tolerance who don't have risk factors for oversedation. And I say this, which I think is such an important advocacy point that we need to use clinically appropriate doses of methadone. But I say it with caution because we also need to respect methadone. It's, you know, it's a medication that can cause oversedation. It can cause QTC prolongation. There are wide person-to-person differences in metabolism. And so we have a colleague that we all know, Dr. Zoe Weinstein, who taught me something when I was new faculty, which was the two-by-two of how much you know about methadone and how scared you are of methadone. (laughs) And so I want my team, and the way I want us to practice is to be in that quadrant of knowing a lot about methadone, but actually still, you know, respecting the medication as one that is a higher risk medication that we need to be thoughtful about our use and proceed with caution, but balancing the risks of underdosing, which are actually very substantial. So I can think of so many really critically important implications from your work, including really across the gamut from health systems and policymakers and clinicians. But can you just talk about what you see as some of the most important implications? Sure, absolutely. You know, I think first, as someone who has not worked in the methadone system before and and maybe thought I knew more than I did, I think it has really just laid bare how challenging it is to enter methadone treatment from someone that for people with severe opioid use disorder thought I understood what it takes to get into an OTP and some of the challenges and I think just the the demand for this service for same-day on-demand withdrawal management has made it incredibly clear that the need for fundamental reform is the most important takeaway 
And so, you know, there's very important advocacy work underway that, that we think is the solution. But in the meantime, this is something that we can do now. And so as buprenorphine providers, as emergency medicine teams, as internists, as family medicine docs, as maybe a whole host of disciplines, I think the punchline here is that this is something we can do now, and we're not off the hook. Of course, the fundamental reform is needed. We need to, we need to make methadone more accessible, and we need to really make same-day, on-demand withdrawal management with entry into the treatment system the default for people that are interested in methadone treatment. But while we work towards that, this is something that we can do now, today, in emergency departments, in many outpatient settings that have the right licensure and resources for medication storage and administration. Mm -hmm. Hospitals. Hospitals. We are responsible for this, even if we identify as supermarket teams or, you know, teams that don't work in OTPs. This is our responsibility as well. And so I think that's my main takeaway, that we can do this now. We should be doing this now, and we really need to be building our community connections and bridges and partnering with local OGPs and as they're incredibly interested in partnering with the medical system to deliver this care to patients in a way that leverages the strength of all of these systems and supports people in, in getting from one point in the care cascade to the next, but really, you know, fundamentally to their treatment goals. Amen. That's beautiful. That is awesome. Thank you so much. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today for your really practice-changing, policy-changing work and for sharing your experience with us and our, and our listeners. This is a wonderful way to kick off our first podcast episode, and we're just so thrilled. Thanks so much. Thank you, both. Well, Honora, I learned so much from Dr. Taylor here. Put me in the camp of someone who thought we needed legislation at the federal level to change how we were delivering methadone. What were the take-homes you take from what we heard from Dr. Taylor? Yeah, I thought this was really enlightening. You know, my take-home points are that it's feasible to leverage the 72-hour rule to initiate methadone in non-traditional, non-OTP settings. For example, hospital-associated clinics, hospitals, emergency departments. And that actually that then opens up an opportunity to uptitrate methadone at clinically appropriate doses, which may be faster than what's currently federally legislated. And Dr. Taylor and her team showed excellent linkage and retention rates that are at least as good as what we understand as sort of the, the benchmark and likely in patients who are more vulnerable. And finally, that this requires partnerships with OTPs. And again, you know, I think Dr. Taylor really summarized beautifully that her experience highlights both the need for really urgent reform to existing methadone regulations because there's such an enormous demand and we really need no wrong door real-time access to methadone and that within the existing systems we can do better and we can do more acknowledging again that it requires initiative partnerships and, and treatment pathways that's such an excellent summary well we're going to wrap it there for this time we're excited to see you in future episodes if you'd like to know more about aod health you can check us out at aodhealth.org and we're very grateful to the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center for their support. So we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Anora. Behind the Evidence is hosted by Anora Englander and Mark LaRochelle. Production by Raquel Silviera. Editing by Casey Calver. Music and cover art 
by Mary Tomanovich. Miriam Kumarami is the medical director of the Graken Center for Addiction and co-editor-in-chief of AOD Health, together with David Filene. Learn more about AOD Health and subscribe for free at www.aodhealth.org. Behind the Evidence is supported by the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center. It is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities.